You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, my name is Father Joe Kotursky. I'm in the philosophy department at Fordham University in the Bronx. I'm very happy to be with you for this course on spiritual theology. The subject of spiritual theology is one that has been called by many names in the course of Christian history. Sometimes it's thought of as the devout life, as in the book by Francis de Sales. Sometimes it's called spiritual theology, being mindful of the tremendous importance of the Holy Spirit in guiding our own Christian development. Sometimes it's been called the interior life, thinking especially about the ways in which mental prayer is extremely important to this tradition. It's often been known, especially in the Dominican tradition, as the theology of Christian perfection. And it has names such as ascetical theology and mystical theology, as well as just a theology of the supernatural life. In the course of calling it by these various names, what the authors that have proposed that we undertake a study of such things have been trying to make various important distinctions. In much of the intellectual life, we make our progress by making careful distinctions between one thing and another. On the other hand, some of the authors in this tradition have tried to make the distinctions so compartmentalized as to make almost an artificial set of distinctions about this discipline. And what I would like to try to do in our course on the spiritual life is to include all of these things, to include some of the rigors that are appropriate to the ascetical practices involved in Christian perfection, as well as consideration of some of the quieter docility that's involved when one is trying to be receptive to mystical experiences, the things that a person like John of the Cross would have called the passive purifications of the soul. And what I'd like to try to do is to gather all these things together in one course and think about it as the theology of the spiritual life. And my reason for doing so is to encourage a sense that there is a unity to this entire tradition and to this part of theology, as well as to stress the unity between this area of our Christian perfection, of our way of life, the unity between it and other parts of theology, such as especially moral theology and things like the liturgy, great concern with dogmatic theology. I think that these things are very unified and that they are well studied together, as we'll try to show as we go along in the course of this lecture. What I'll be doing today then in this first set is to consider the general nature of the subject, and then secondly, some important resources, and finally, some of the terms that are extremely important. In general, spirituality may be defined as any religious or philosophical attitude from which actions flow. In this sense, many a religion and many a philosophy could be said to exhibit a distinct kind of spirituality. And yet, in saying that and appreciating the fact that there are different traditions of spirituality, we'll be concentrating, of course, on Christian spirituality, and we'll need to be very cautious and wary right from the start, because I think there's a current fascination with spirituality utterly untethered to religion, the mere cultivation of feelings and of sensibility, 
apart from questions of truth in matters of religion. This is to say that there are false spiritualities as well as true ones, both because the practices that are recommended by a given spirituality are sometimes quite hurtful. Other practices that are recommended are quite helpful, genuinely helpful to a person. It's also a, a necessary distinction because there are important questions of truth and falsity, and not just questions about feeling and meaningfulness that apply to religious claims. For Christians, the only authentic spirituality is one that is centered on Jesus Christ and linked with Jesus Christ to the Holy Trinity. There is of great importance in keeping that front and center. Given especially the tremendous damage to the human race that came with original sin and the distortion upon our lives by the deprivation of the charity according to which we were made and how we are supposed to love, we find ourselves in need of real restoration, of great healing. And for a Christian, all spirituality that is true and genuine must be focused on Christ, who is the source of our real restoration and our real healing. Hence, we need to have that great connection between this subject and Christian morality, as well as topics within theology that deal with the nature of Christ and with the nature of God in the Trinity. The church's spirituality always focuses upon Christ as the incarnate word, one who was sent by the Father to perfect what was imperfect in us, to sanctify what is sinful in us. And what we need to do in spirituality, and hence what we need to focus on in a theology of spirituality, is to focus on how to learn to live in Christ. Or as St. Paul often says in his epistles, to learn how to recapitulate the life of Christ by cooperating with his saving grace. He undertook our nature precisely in order to restore us to communion with divinity. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, one of my favorite patristic theologians, used to like to say, what Christ did not assume about our nature, he did not heal. But in order to heal our entire nature, he took on our complete nature and therefore was able to heal it. We sometimes like to say in theology that Christ took on every aspect of our nature except sin. And that's quite true because sin is not a part of our nature, but rather a defect, something that's missing, something that's imperfect. And it is this that Christ came to restore. The other danger to be mindful of right here at the start is the modern danger of syncretism, the uncritical acceptance and amalgamation of diverse traditions. The church, by contrast, has always reaffirmed that all created grace comes to us only through the mediation of Christ. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. And I'd like to begin in this first lecture by just considering some of the important church documents of late which have tried to focus on that particular truth. From the Second Vatican Council, in its declaration on the relation of the church to non-Christian religions, called Nostra Aetate, we find the following paragraph that speaks to this question. The Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions. She has a high regard for the manner of life and conduct, the precepts and doctrines which, although differing in many ways from her own teaching, nevertheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Yet she proclaims 
and is in duty bound to proclaim without fail, Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In him, in whom God reconciled all things to himself, men must find the fullness of religious life. Now in that quotation from the Second Vatican Council, I think one has a very healthy appreciation for the fact that there are other spiritual traditions, which by focusing upon human nature have discovered things of value. And yet it insists in the way that Christian theology of spiritual life must always insist that our focus must be on Christ who gives the fullness, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Another document from the Second Vatican Council of relevance here is the one called Gaudium et Spes, the Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. In paragraph 22 it reads, In reality it is only in the mystery of the Word made flesh that the mystery of man becomes truly clear. Christ the Lord fully reveals man to himself and brings to light his most high calling. The Christian is certainly bound both by the need and the duty to struggle with evil through many afflictions and to suffer death. But as one who has been made a part in the Paschal mystery and as one who has been configured to the death of Christ, he will go forward strengthened by hope to the resurrection. All this holds true not only for Christians, but for all men of good will in whose hearts grace is active invisibly. For since Christ died for all, and since all men are in fact called to one and the same destiny, which is divine, we must hold that the Holy Spirit offers to all the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Paschal mystery. There too, in that document from the Second Vatican Council, one finds that great appreciation for the fact of different spiritualities and different ethical traditions, which can have something valuable to say, and yet constantly they take us back to Christ who gives the whole truth about man, that phrase which Pope John Paul II has so often made his own. Let me comment on one other particular church document, a much more recent one. It's called Dominus Jesus and was issued just in the year 2000 by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It is called a Declaration on the Unicity and Salvific Universality of Jesus Christ and of the Church. Quoting from paragraph 22, With the coming of the Savior Jesus Christ, God has willed that the Church founded by Him be the instrument for the salvation of all humanity. This truth of faith does not lessen the sincere respect which the church has for the other religions of the world, but at the same time it rules out in a radical way that mentality of indifferentism characterized by a religious relativism which leads to the belief that one religion is as good as another. If it is true that the followers of other religions can receive divine grace, it is also certain then, objectively speaking, they are in a gravely deficient situation in comparison with those who, in the church, have the fullness of the means of salvation. However, all of the children of the church should nevertheless remember that their exalted condition results not from their own merits, but from the grace of Christ. If they fail to respond in thought, word, and deed to that grace, not only shall they not be saved, but they shall be more severely judged. One understands then that following the Lord's command as a requirement of her love for all people, 
The church proclaims and is in duty bound to proclaim without fail Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. In him, in whom God reconciled all things to himself, men must find the fullness of their religious life. Now I find in a quotation like that from Dominus Jesus both a tremendous continuity on the part of the church here in the year 2000 with what the church had been saying, for example, in Vatican II and long before, namely an appreciation for other traditions, but also an insistence, and this time perhaps with even more forcefulness and strength, an insistence that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And it seems to me that it is directly intended to counteract any hint of indifferentism, an indifferentism that is found, for instance, in those traditions and those points of view which regard spirituality devoid or untethered to religion as being the thing that is important, as if the cultivation of feeling or sensitivity were what the goal were, where in fact there are truths of religion which are highly prized and considered absolutely crucial to the nature of this spiritual theology to be an authentic discipline. Let me turn in the time that remains to two other points. First, one having to do with simply some of the resources that are available, and then a bit on some of the terminology that will be crucial. It seems to me that there are three types of writings that make up the tradition of Christian spirituality. I would list them in the following ways. First, there are writings that encourage the reader to greater perfection, ways that provide instruction on how to achieve that purpose. As examples of this first kind of writing within spiritual theology, I refer you to the famous and classic text, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, or perhaps The Introduction to a Devout Life by Francis de Sales, or something like the writings of Claude de la Colombière on the Sacred Heart of Jesus. A second group of writings that will be resources for our study together are writings that record and describe the religious experiences of various holy men and women. Sometimes they're quite autobiographical in nature. I think here, for example, of some of the writings of Francis of Assisi, the writings of Teresa of Avila and of John of the Cross, and the writings of Ignatius Loyola, of my own Jesuit tradition. Often these kind of writings provide a description and a pattern for an entire religious congregation or a movement that the saint has founded or influenced. A third group of writings that will be useful to us are writings that attempt a theoretical study of the nature of Christian perfection and the spiritual life and all the ways and means to attain that. I've listed some in the handout that goes with this course, but I'm thinking of writers like Garigou Lagrange, who is so important to Pope John Paul II's own work, people like the Dominican Father Jordan Aumann, or the Jesuits Joseph de Guibert or Paul Quay. This course will be of the third sort, namely a somewhat more theoretical study, and in its efforts to consider some practical applications of theological principles, I'll make careful use of these authors in particular. In the final portion then of this lecture, I'd like to just to consider some of the terminology that we'll need as we go along. The paths to Christian perfection and to progress in the spiritual life are numerous, and they include such things as liturgical spirituality, lay spirituality and priestly spirituality, the spirituality of various devotions like the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the spirituality of various kinds of religious life, Benedictine spirituality, Franciscan, Dominican, Carmelite, Salesian, Jesuit. 
While each of these diverse approaches certainly merits study, this course will tend to use them mostly by way of example, without attempting to provide a full-scale description of what is distinctive about each approach. My goal here will be to consider, more generally, some of the elements that are common to all of these different approaches, including what these various writers have considered to be the nature of Christian perfection, what the life of grace means, what they think about the acquired and the infused virtues, and how they understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Many writers on spiritual theology, if you choose to read a bit in these various books, many writers will try to take up the practical aspects of this discipline under the headings of the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive ways or stages. I would like to simply point out that it is important to consider each of these, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive, and yet not to think that all Christian souls grow in exactly the same way. It is not as though these are stages that one absolutely has to march through in exactly the same order. Rather, it is that these are things that will be crucial to the spiritual life, and that sometimes one will be more in one and more in another. And then even after having been in one, sometimes one needs to return and to restore one's foundations. The more immediately practical part of this course, that is lectures 6 through 12, will attempt to undertake some use of that purgative, illuminative, and unitive ways, whereas the first part of this course, lectures 1 through 5, will be of a somewhat more general and theoretical nature. Here at the start, however, it may be helpful to reflect for a moment on this very traditional division of the subject. The purgative way has as its goal the purifying of individuals from their various faults and the strengthening of individuals by providing the kind of virtue that will help to sustain them, particularly when they're faced with the prospect or the temptation of committing those faults hereafter. Since, however, only the really perfect, the perfectly pure of heart, will see God in heaven, there are other ways that are typical of the illuminative way. Prayer, mortification, and virtue are considered absolutely indispensable for the purgative way, and yet one knows that one cannot do this on one's own. Hence, as we pass from the purgative way to the illuminative way, the soul, very mindful, then it cannot get where it needs to go, simply on its own strength, will instead put the accent on putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, aiming to become more and more like Christ in thought, word, and deed, and that often what this will involve for the illuminative way is a prayer that is highly affective, a prayer that is much more involved in feeling and in beseeching God feeling a great longing and desire for him, so that the mind and heart of Christ will shape the mind and the heart of the Christian soul. Finally, in the unitive way, the Holy Spirit takes much greater control of the whole process. There's much less that we can do about it except to follow where the Spirit leads. Out of a more and more intense desire for intimate union with God, the individual seeks him at all times and everywhere, and finds the greatest happiness considering God's presence in even the most unexpected places. In this stage, prayer tends to become much more simple and to consist almost entirely in the love of God. 
Now, in the entire range of studies of the spiritual life, these distinctions will prove regularly helpful. There are more active and more receptive aspects. As I was saying at the very beginning, some prefer to call this whole brand of theology the ascetical theology or the mystical theology. In the ascetical element within the spiritual theology, the life of grace pertains especially to the realm of our own efforts. Everything that the human being does, admittedly with the help of grace, toward spiritual perfection, especially things like dedication to meditation, to chewing on a passage of scripture, to thinking it through and trying to make some progress, as well as trying to eradicate vice, trying to repair one's defects, trying to practice virtue. On the other hand, in that aspect of spiritual theology and of the spiritual life that is generally called its mystical element, we refer much more to the action of the Holy Spirit in giving his gifts, gifts that enlarge our capacity and that raise us up and elevate us to a greater knowledge of God and to a more intimate union with him. In spiritual theology as a discipline, one finds discussions of these various ways in which God purifies and illumines the soul and finds ways that prayer will turn much more to contemplation to gazing at what the mystery that is set before us is, and to quiet silence before God. This mystical theology will also be that part of the subject that deals with such unusual things as ecstasy, visions, and private revelations. While some authors prefer to divide spiritual theology almost to the point of making separate disciplines out of all these things, the route that I will be following here will be to take them in a complementary fashion, insisting that in the striving for Christian perfection, the primary element is charity, is the love of God rightly ordered in Christ so that we love God well and love our neighbor well. It is my conviction that where we have to center this course is on Christ, who insists that the whole of the law and the whole of the prophets depends on love of God and of neighbor. St. Paul's many teachings on that subject allow theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas, whom I'll also be trying to follow carefully, to call charity the very form of all the virtues. In subsequent lectures, what we'll be attempting to do then is first to consider the more theoretical aspects of our subject, and then in lectures 6 through 12 to turn to some of its more practical elements. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.